Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man who's always driving insane, Duncan Nickel. And welcome back to the second episode of our Book Club. It's, the, it's still the spooky time, Duncan. It's our second episode. It is our second episode. The way you count is amazing. But that's right, our first one was your pick for Berserk to get us into the more dark, horror-filled fantasy theme. And this is my pick. Shadow over Innsmouth. Mouth, muth, it's all, it's all the same. I'm going to go with muth. Muth seems right to me. Yeah, it is, it's a, it is the British way of saying things. We love to shorten things down. Portsmouth. We wouldn't say it's Portsmouth. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Madness. Plymouth. All the ones. All the same. Speaking oh. of madness, that's a pretty important topic for our for our episode this week, Duncan, because we are talking about Lovecraftian horror. Yes, created by H.P. Lovecraft himself and pulled upon by many, many people. Do you know what? Is it kind of unique for a genre to actually get named after like one person? Like We're like, nope, no ambiguity here. Pin in the map, that's where it started. Ooh, that's, a, that's a good question, Duncan. I mean... To a certain extent, when you go down to specifics, people often talk about Poe-inspired horror. But it's 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 kind of hard to, to say, is there a genre which is so closely caught up with the legacy of one particular artist? And I struggle to think of any other. No, I, there are definitely, like, trends, you can say. I think when we read A Court of Thorn and Roses, you know, you can definitely go, oh, well, that inspired quite a lot of fiction came out around then around the same time. Mm. But it's not genre defining. Even Lord of the Rings, and, you know, a lot of people can point to it, like, yep, that was high fantasy. It set standards. Yeah, and people do use the word Tolkien-esque. But I still feel like when we talk about Tolkien's work, people are a little bit more going to say, oh, yeah, but Tolkien was inspired by this and it pulls from the epics and it brings in this and he was just pulling up this, you know. Yeah, there's a bit more nuance When people say something is Tolkien-esque, they're just wrong. They're just wrong. Like, for example, uh, I just finished reading, and jumping into our next topic, I just finished reading Inheritance, the current last book in the inheritance cycle by christopher Bolin, which begins with aragon and people often joke that inheritance cycle is star wars mixed with lord of the rings but it's not it's not i mean their star wars influence is definitely there but like the thing about it which makes it lord of the rings is the fact there are dwarves and elves in it and that's it so it's not good versus evil that is, yeah, but that's, so that's not so a fucking talking theme, is it? Yeah, that, I, know. I feel like you're actually trying to make me angry when you said that. <laughs> it's hard to kind of pin down. I don't know. It's hard to pin down. Like when we talk about Tolkienism, like I think really people are talking about like world building and like you make a, a secondary world or a fantasy land and you attach its full history to it. But the, it, it, but the thing is that no, I don't think any author will ever be Tolkienist because at the end of the day. Uh, Tolkien was m- more interested in his legendarium than he really was in his books, in my personal opinion. Like, I think he would have thrown out the entirety of The Lord of the Rings to get his version of the Silmarillion out there. Wow, that's a... Those are intense words. I can't... Like, what I know of the author, that does sort of line up, but I can't imagine someone, the creator of The Lord of the Rings, couldn't look at it and go, yep, that's my finest work. Um, no, I mean, that guy was famously always, always, always doing revisions. 
the only part of a Lord of the Rings which is like basically unchanged is the chapter that introduces Treebeard. That he famously wrote in essentially one draft, in like one stream of consciousness, and was never changed. But everything else about the trilogy was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty flexible. Like there used to be another, another Hobbit along for the roads. I can't remember what his name was, but he was replaced later by Strider, who eventually became Aragorn, the lost king of Numenor. You know, is it more like a he's writing? He goes, oh, I, I can tie that in. Oh, I've got a bit of lore there, and just starts like plugging it into the story. Much like George R. R. Martin, he just sort of flew by the seat of his pants. He didn't really plan out his stories, which is ironic considering that he's associated so much with like meticulous planning and history and stuff. But no, he just he was very much a off the cuff writer. But the skill there was writing off the cuff and then making it seamlessly look like you planned it all from the start. I would not call it even remotely seamless. Uh, Tom fucking Bombadil. What about him? That is that is that is a mighty seam. That is a a seam like a mountain range. But we're not here to talk about Tolkien, Duncan. We're here to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, a much worse writer. I mean, I'm not going to argue that point. But when you're saying much worse than Tolkien, there's quite a few writers I put in that category, and many of them I like. I just think that Howard Phillips Lovecraft is not an amazing writer. Wow. I mean, do you want to talk about anything else you've read? Or are you literally like, no, now's the time. I need to go for the juggling on Lovecraft. I think an appropriate comparison I can make is the fact that in addition to finishing, in the same week, two epics felled at once. I finished Inheritance. By the way, side note, that book is much, much better than I remember it being. Uh, it used to be my least favourite of the series. I only read it once, never felt the urge to read it again. Read it through this time, I was like, wow, that he's really matured as a writer. That is so much better than the other stuff that preceded in the series. He literally just got better and better as a writer as that series went on. Good for you, Chris. Looking forward to Murtagh coming out. I only ever read the first one, Eragon, and I was just middling. And I went. I mean, cool, it's not that. it's not an amazing book. It's it's a pretty good book. I would you know I would put it in the, uh, the same sort of tier as something like a Court of Thorns and Roses. Like yeah, that was that was pretty good. But then each book just gets subsequently better and better. So why else did you read? I finished The Stand by Stephen King. Put that and Inheritance together. I'm pretty sure that is about a million words. It's over a thousand pages. The version I read anyway. And, uh, yeah, that was also a good book. Um, very strange in places. As I said on our previous episode, uh, don't, it's, it shows its age, but it also is really ahead of its time. Like, one character is basically like an ur incel, and I only found out the first edition of this book was written in 1978, so way ahead of the time. And when you consider that it was written in 1978 and, like, one of the main characters is deaf and mute and another of the main characters is, like, um, uh, has serious mental problems, that, that's surprisingly well done. The depiction of, like, insanity, not so well done. Sorry, trash can man. Um, but yeah, crazy book. Had a good time. Would recommend. Well, I'm going to take that recommendation and neatly file it 
away under things I may get to one day in the distance, distance, distance future. But still, good to hear. I read something a little bit lighter, I think, than both your long epics. I read House of Many Ways, the third book in the House Moving Castle. Not really a trilogy, I'm going to call it a series. There are three, but they're not... They're not... They're not connected these are very much these independent stories that i do believe you could read independently i don't i think you should read them publication order maybe you swap the third and the second round but anyway end of the series this was written i think gosh many years after the first two i believe the first book was written around 86 Mm. second came out in 90 and then this book wasn't released until 2008 so an 18 year gap so directly after the movie came out Oh yes, exactly. In fact, the gap between the first two books is four years, and the gap between the third book and the movie is also four years. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, okay, I see when you got started. But to be honest, it doesn't show it. It's not. It doesn't feel like a cash in. It. It genuinely has just as much heart and charm, I think, as the previous two books. It's such a more laid back story. I definitely feel like. If you kind of put them all out on a spectrum, so House of Many Ways, House of Moving Castle, and Castle in the Air, you get like the adventure to like the cosy laid back cup of tea. Mm. And Castle in the Air is the adventure, House of Many Ways is the cosy cup of tea, and then House, the original, is like perfectly in the middle. Mm, mm. Really nicely written, a wonderful main character, a young woman again, going back to the main character in the first book kind of exploring this magical world, but also just... That's making sense, Duncan. She's an old woman. She's both in the first book. This one is just a young woman. But I really like it because it's just... She goes... So the premise of this story is she's asked to go and look after her uncle's house. And her uncle is a wizard and he's away for a bit. And so it's just a kind of cute little story for the most part. It does have some bigger elements as you get further in of her just kind of like puzzling out this magical house trying to do things like the laundry and sort out breakfast and kind of it's like a coming of age but with this kind of quirky magical building she's dealing with that has a lot of personalities and really cute characters as well so does it also have a cute fire spirit the uh, fire spirit does make a returning appearance but we get a cute pet dog in this one who is just adorable great so, um, speaking of cozy, wholesome, good times, shall we talk about uh, <laughs> Shadow Over Innsmouth? Shadow Over Innsmouth is my pick for our horror themed, And I've spoken previously that I have read some Lovecraft, but I haven't actually read any of the big ones. I've not read Mountains of Madness, not read Call of Cthulhu. Mm. I haven't read... Good. <laughs> until recently, Shadow Over Innsmouth. So I've not really dived into those big named ones. So this was quite different to me. And I'll say, I say there's the big ones. My, in my copy, I have a omnibus called the Necronomicon. This takes up about 50 pages. Mm. Geordie, mm. I absolutely really kind of enjoyed like 10 of those pages. Oof, yeah, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I mean, how many of those pages are given up to... To strangers telling you information about a town directly verbatim. Like 35. I swear 35 pages. Yeah. It is the majority of the story is 
two conversations where someone just rants at the main character for a while. And the main character is purely a lens. Like, he has zero lines of dialogue. It never speaks because he's giving his account of it later down the line. He has an eidetic memory for what they said, but not for what he said in response to them. It's genuinely, the breakdown of this story is our main character has a good setup. He says, I must tell you my version of events that happened. Yes, that's the American true. Actually, Army. I was, really, I was really impressed by the framing device. It really it starts off device. stake strong from the start. It is the exact same as the Mountains of Madness framing device, however. I mean, I can't speak to that, but I like the idea that it introduces goes, there has been a government cover-up. I'm here to tell you the true story. Great. Good. I'm intrigued. It, it is amusing that in a hundred years after this comes out, far down the line, you could have a conspiracy theorist on their podcast about to, you know, hawk super male vitality. They're breeding us with the first people. Turning all in there, you know, the Innsmouth people into frogs. It taps into that vibe of just there's a crazy, and the character kind of has that feel of like, I know this seems like a crazy conspiracy theory, but you have to believe me. What I like about his response to it is that there's a certain point in the story where he defines that sort of conspiratorial thinking, but he wraps it up in a nice Lovecraftian bow which is that he says when he's about to reveal the horrifying thing he saw, which warped his very perception of the universe, he speculates that, is it not possible that everyone who went to Innsmouth all shared a hallucination and that none of it was real? Because isn't that just as plausible as what he thinks the reality is? I mean, it is a good undercut. I definitely feel like the story doesn't lean into that, but I do enjoy the note to it. It's like, yeah, you can you can believe that if you like. It's like the olive branch. It's like, if you don't want to believe the horror, just pretend it didn't happen. So, so I mean, it didn't happen. It's fiction. But, um... <laughs> you know what I mean. I, and you're right. Um, that opening is really strong. And the closing of the story is really strong too. It's everything in the middle, which is, like, not good. I want to say everything in the middle, but I definitely know where you're coming from. I think the main issue here is the fact that what we essentially get is a cool opening mm-hmm. and then we dive into his account. But his account essentially boils down to three conversations and each of those conversations, it's not even a conversation, it is a monologue delivered by one other character mm-hmm. telling you this is the backstory. And we slowly progress from one character who's quite far removed to a character who is a bit closer, but not actually in. And then finally a character who is like, I was there, I saw it. And then we go yeah. to the sort of the climax. That three-stage bit could be condensed to one character. This could be made a 25-page story, and I probably would have loved it a hell of a lot more. Yeah, so the best thing about it is... So first thing, before I even get into like the first guy who he speaks to, because it is almost hysterical how non-naturalistic the story is and like how it delivers the information it's so stupid and on the nose the way this person just opens up a wikipedia article which they somehow have stored in their brain before we get into that though can we talk about what a fucking dweeb the main character is i mean be my guest he is is robert olmstead 
And to celebrate his coming of age, he's doing a tour of New England looking at architecture and antiquities. Yes. What a fucking nerd. That didn't necessarily bother me, but it did definitely put him in a position where... Well, I don't really... I can't relate to that guy. Who's the guy who goes in for... It's not sucks. It's not just like I was travelling through or I was going to visit an aunt or an uncle or something like that. He's like, no, I'm here to look at interesting architecture. And I know he's trying to give him more of a plausible reason for why he might go out of his way. But I don't mm-hmm. think Innsmouth or Innsmouth, sorry, is implied to have interesting architecture. I thought no, that might play he, into it. He the thing is the interesting thing is that he later goes around and says, I was inspecting the architecture. And it is exactly that. It's a reason to dip from that he delays. He doesn't get out of town straight away. But he never actually describes what would make the architecture interesting. He only just says that it's super dilapidated. <sighs> anyway, um, so he goes to this like ticket office. And this ticket guy says, like, listen, it's going to be really expensive to take the train to Arkham. But you could take the bus. Except the bus goes through Innsmouth. And Robert Olmsted says, what's Innsmouth? And the ticket guy says, well, it's funny you should ask. Here's a hundred years of history of Innsmouth off the dome. It is incredible. And I know it does seem like off-putting. I think the real issue, though, is that our main character doesn't even show an interest. It's not like there's like a conversation back and forth where he's like tweeting out more information. This guy just drops it. And obviously for the reader, that is pages and pages of, well, the history of Innsmouth's Watts. It was founded in this day. They say it's not just like, he doesn't just say something, I don't and know. And in the War of 1812, and then they had ships coming in and out, and then this fellow went to the West Indies. He doesn't just say, it's a town we don't like. They're a bit funny there. Mm-hmm. And then and then you, our main character could then start pulling on that thread. Well, why did you think they're a bit funny? Well, exactly, they've yeah. been a bit weird since this day. That would be too naturalistic. The, fun, the problem is, Duncan, that H.P. Lovecraft hasn't had a conversation with a human being in some time. And I don't just mean because he's dead. He was a weirdo, and I, he, I don't think he knew how people communicated with one another. Because he was watching them from between his blinds from across the street. Duncan, I want to do, do a little test, okay? Alright. I want you to go to a digital map. Google Maps. Edge Maps, whatever it's, Microsoft Maps. And I want you to look up Cambridge and pick a random town nearby to Cambridge, where I live, okay? I'm very curious to see how this turns out. So I've lived in Cambridge for a very long time, since I was a child. I'm pretty... I've visited most of the towns around me. I know people from them. So surely I should be able to also do an off-the-dome... Uh, expose on any of these towns which you choose. Especially considering this guy has never been to Innsmouth. He makes that quite clear. Tell me about the town of Oakington. <laughs> is there a town called Oakington near Cambridge? There is a town called Oakington. And a lovely town called Longstanton. Beautiful name. Um, I've seen that on road signs for sure. Uh, uh, tr- try, try another one. Um, how about Great Abington? Um, that's definitely also on signs that I've seen. Uh, are there any that trains go through, Duncan? Ooh, the train line, mate. Uh, Sawston? Whittlesford? Duxford? Uh, I've... Duxford? Okay, I can tell you about Duxford. Um, so Duxford has a very large museum. It's the largest 
air, uh, like air history museum in Great Britain, and they have the largest collection of Spitfires uh, in the world. That's actually really cool. I would want to visit there. Yeah. As for the town itself, I've definitely driven through it. Can't tell you about the character of the people who live there or their reputation of a local area. I see your point. I think if I was trying to form a counter-argument here, you could say that the town that this bus ticket attendant lives in must not have a lot of neighbouring towns. You know, maybe it's a real quiet area. He only has to learn about four towns, whereas obviously around Cambridge you have closer to 30. I mean, you gotta. I mean, they can say that, but it's also it's New England. It's not Texas. It's not like this village is going to be super far apart. Also, where's he getting this information? That's really my other point. Is is this all from the bus driver? He doesn't have the internet. Cause the bus driver doesn't talk. No, is he just going to a library? Who the hell is writing books about Innsmouth? Or is this genuinely the level of like word of mouth that just exists in this town? That people like. To be fair, maybe this is how people talked back then. We're not from the 20s and the 30s. They didn't have shit to do. They didn't have Twitter. Maybe they just shared local history with one another. I mean, wouldn't be necessarily a terrible way to live. But I take your point. I think it sounds or- awful. <laughs> I don't want to learn anything about. I, do you want to? I think I know too much about Duxford. I wish I could forget some of it now. It's unnatural, and the problem is, not only do we have this unnatural conversation, then we get two other unnatural conversations where we kind of relearn the same information. We get this one for the yeah, ticket booster. Yeah, but each time a little bit more information is revealed to us. We get a store clerk, and then finally we get the craze Zadok. Geordie, do any of these characters mean anything to you? I often forget that like, the store boy is a character in the story, and this is a story that I have read numerous times, Duncan. I don't think I've made that clear. You know, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be into Howard Phillips Lovecraft because that was the cool shit to be into. He has those big, long words, and uh, he has a dark and mysterious style, which is very influential. It has a big tentacle monster in it called Cthulhu. Um, Of course I want to be into that shit. And I always forget his character's in it because he's so um, non... He doesn't add anything to the story, like, at all. He just tells you that the people in Innsmouth are weird. And a more talented writer would show instead of tell that. Unfortunately, this story is being written by Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And um, Zadok, his story is so rambly and impossible to understand because he has him speak in this broken hick patois. Which makes, like, he, like, writes in, like, the apostrophes and, like, changes the shape of the words and stuff to make sure that you know that this guy is poor and crazy. And, um, as a result, I, it took me many, many readings to actually understand what his story is. Also, it's, like, told extremely badly, like, from a storytelling point of view. There are way too many steps and way too much unnecessary information about this old ship captain who made a deal with these fish monsters to, like, get lots of fish and lots of gold. And that's all you need to tell. But instead, it's like, oh, there were these islanders in this specific place, and they would deal, and they had these special statues on their island, which looked almost like humans, but weren't quite humans, and then the ship captain met them, and he learned from them how to do this, but then later, these other people attacked those islanders. You don't need to know any of that information. All the, the only reason it's in there is so that he can squeeze just a little bit more racism into the story. I think that's a great point to actually jump on there. 
There is some appalling racism in this story. And this is one of the least racist ones, Duncan. Geordie, I don't even want to really consider that. This book does so much to just infer that you should be horrified at the idea that people from different parts of the world are coupling up together. What a horrible exactly. notion. It's, exactly. It's about miscegenation, which is a hard word to say. And I actually couldn't say it throughout my whole first year of university. There were reread books about and like laws surrounding making miscegenation illegal. And I couldn't say it during my presentation. I kept stammering my way through it. I have to remember what you did there for studies. I'm like, it doesn't come up as much in an engineering degree. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've been there with long, complex words. And it's, it's grotesque because it's not nece- none of the characters recognise it as... No one calls out the characters. It's not like in-world, oh my god, that guy is a bit racist. It is the author contextually trying to put down, you should be horrified at this notion. He describes like people having simian faces, like a bullhorn dog whistle right there. Um, he uses like... Complete like there's a scene when he sees like his first Innsmouth person and he's like approaching a bus and he does like he enters like vats from Fallout and he's like zooming in and he's doing like race science in his head, being like, Oh, what sort of ethnicity is he? How am I gonna judge this person? I can't it even says like, I can't believe my 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 skin crawled the idea that I would have to share the bus with this person. That nearly kid killed the story dead for me. Like, at the start. If this was longer, and if this was reiterated throughout the story a bit more, I think I would come to this with a much more, almost hatred and anger at this plot. As it is, the weird sort of... Okay, the character's a racist arsehole. Fine. Not fine, but I, I can, I'm going to sit with him for this short story. The fact that it's then kind of implied, oh no, it wasn't because of that. They were actually coupling up with spoilers everyone the fishy people mm-hmm. it's just a more, more grotesque it almost takes the uh the natural of like oh they're crossbreeding with like the cthulhu creatures offspring gods whatever you want to call them and just adds this horrible slant to it where you're like i can't even be horrified at that because i'm too busy horrified at you the author for comparing that to that Exactly. Like, it takes away from the horror of it because you instinctively end up in a critical mode where you aren't able to actually enter into the horror of it because you are re- you feel repulsed by it and you refuse to engage with it on a deeper level. It's a similar reason why, you know, in our Berserk episodes, we criticize the use of sexual violence now because whilst it is intended to horrify us, um, we we step away from the experience of being in the story and feeling for the characters because we are repulsed by the story itself and the techniques that are being used in it. That's a much more eloquent way to kind of describe what I've really struggled for years to kind of put out there when I've talked about like H.P. Lovecraft to people. Because they go, is it horrifying? I'm like, yes. Not for the reasons the author probably thought though. Exactly, Yes. I mean, we're not allowed to talk about his cat. And let's not. So back to this plot. We have said a lot how we don't like the stories told to us. It's a lot of big, long monologues. But I did say, Geordie, at the very beginning, there were 10 pages that I quite liked. Okay, yeah. And uh, I think I'm actually going to agree with you here. Now, 
I don't know, I almost feel like ashamed for enjoying this so much. But actually, there's a bit of horror to this that actually clicked with me on a level of like, oh, I feel that. There's a scene in there, in this book, where our main character is in a hotel room. He goes into his room and he notices there's no bolt on the door. Mm. Geordie, have you ever felt that before? Have I ever felt that, like, a security precaution has been taken away? Because it's not just that it's not there, he can see that it's been removed. Yes, have you ever felt that? I can't recall having felt that, no. Right, I have stayed in a lot of, like, Airbnbs, and it's one of these things Mm -hmm. that my partner never notices, and always hates me because I always point it out. Because I have stayed in places where I've not just that there's not been a bolt. Because I like when I go to sleep to be able to, you know, lock up the house, lock the door. My own hotel has to have a lock on it. No, yeah, for sure. I, I even lock the bathroom door when I'm alone in the house. Like, it's a real kind of like close touch thing. Like, I need to have security if I'm going to be, you know, relaxed. From the marauders. They're out there. And I have stayed in places. I stayed in this one little hut that was, I think... It was a eco hut, is what my partner booked. I called it the murder shack. And it was mm-hmm. in the woods and it had to be fair, it was a nice <laughs> that, eco yeah, hut. That's, pre- that's pretty scary actually, right from the start. It's in the woods, not a good way to begin. It's in the woods. It had there was no electricity out there that had basically no phone signal, no way to charge. There was a little wood burner, a compostable toilet it was actually a very nice place built and the person who built it clearly took a lot of care and it had like rainwater collected for the shower like there there was someone who would get the vibe but i couldn't enjoy it because the doors of the place didn't have a bolt fine had the little lighter patch of wood where the bolt used to be not fine not fine with me <laughs> oh dear yeah, that is the exact situation. Yeah, that's great. That's exactly what happens in this story. There is a little lighter patch of wood. Now, Duncan, did you, did you, like the hero of this story, then find that bolt and then reattach it using your Swiss army knife? No, I did the, what all brave people do and asked their partner to sleep closer to the door. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, back myself in a corner. Yeah, it's that's great. funny. My girlfriend will never, ever sleep on the side close to the door she insists that i i'm always the one uh to sleep on the other side of the bed whichever bed we happen to find ourselves in we've had this debate where we've kind of gone oh is it left or right i'm not sure like where do we normally sleep i'm like it's nothing to do with left or right it's always been the door me but this Mm. was the one time i just went nope you book this place you go first Now, you guys can consider duncan paranoid but you have to understand is that we're in a very dangerous profession um, not only are we podcasters, which is a dangerous profession all of its own, uh, we've made enemies. There are people out there who are very big fans of Malice. And they did not like it when we slated off that book. No, no, no. Which was very weird. It's not my fault that they're mistaken in their yeah, likes. idiots. So I really loved this scene because I felt that initial horror and mm. it got me right into the moment. I loved the fact that the character just had their Swiss Army knife, like... Fine, not set up or established before, but whatever. Yeah, whatever. I think That's fine. I think I don't know. I think I would have liked it a bit more if he'd been a little bit more like I don't know, like ad hoc in finding a way to screw it on. But cool. And then this next scene of people trying to enter his hotel room mm. while he's asleep is really good. Do you not? Did this not take you back to being like a kid 
and maybe I'm revealing too much of my own experience here, and like you're not going to share this, but like lying in bed and thinking you can hear someone come up the stairs, but you're thinking someone can't be coming up the stairs. Everyone else is in bed. What is going on? I cannot. It's just like the sound, like the house creaking. I cannot relate to that. Maybe my house just wasn't creaky enough. Um, and I was always very good at like telling who was coming up the stairs by their weight and by their stride. So I guess that's the difference. But um, this scene for me, I like the bit that you've talked about and that like his coming up with a plan and like stopping it. I do think the scene gets a little bit. This is so. This is like the uh, one of two action scenes which H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote. The other one being any out in the mountains of madness, which is just about two people running with flashlights in their hands, and that's that's the entire action scene. This is the only time where it's like beat to beat. Okay, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do? And it's about him like closing various doors to stop people from getting in, and, like jumping in between rooms, and it is dampened a little bit by the fact that it, it gets quite confusing. The logistics of which door is he referring to? Oh, he's going to the hallway door. Wait, what does that actually mean? What does he mean by hallway door? The kind of setup here is that you've got a door onto the hallway, but there's connecting doors to all the rooms on this side of the building. Yeah. And so he's kind of like flying between them, but it it gets very confusing because I'm like, okay, so he's put the bolt there. He's put the bed up against that one, but then he has to like smash down and then he gets into the next room. But since he gets into the next room, I don't understand what happens. It's like, then he has to like quickly lock the hallway door again then are people coming in behind him it just a bit of a it mess it would be good as a movie in a movie that scene would work well because you wouldn't have to describe the logistics of it you'd just be able to see it um but unfortunately this book exists and also it is a book instead of a movie i will say Jordy, there is actually a video game called call of cthulhu dark corners of the world or something on those lines which has this scene in it yeah. Where you as the player have to like run between doors and push objects against them and mm. like slam locks. It that bit of the game the game as a whole was a mm, bit dodgy. But that bit, excellently detailed. Like it takes you to the scene and I thought this is such a cool set piece. This is a good set piece. That's Even interesting. The story Maybe we seen, should end this episode, Duncan, by talking about adaptations of uh Shadow of Innsmouth or or Cthulhu Nuss in general, HP Lovecraft works. I mean, that is a huge field of mostly poor quality, but there might be some diamonds out there. I, I think we have a little so, discussion about that. But... But yeah, I like this. I like this, the initial escape. He gets out of the hotel, he slides across the roof, he ducks into the garden, he's out in the town. And then what I proceed to get after that, Geordie, is a long description of, I was on this street, then I went to this street, then I backed up to this street, and I'm like... Yeah, that's true. That scene is almost good. That scene is really close to being good because it's, again, this is the only time he ever tried to write an action scene. And maybe if he'd done it again and he'd gotten some practice at it, he might have gotten better. And he might have even, like, you know, taken a few hints from his good pal, Robert E. Howard. Cannot, like, real life, true story. They were best friends. They were pen pals. And he was really good at action scenes. In fact, he was good at writing stories unlike H.P. Lovecraft, maybe he could have taken some pointers. Anyway, that scene is almost good because there's a whole bunch of stuff about the different ways in which he has to escape, like imitating the shuffling walk of the Innsmouth folk and like ducking down into the pier. And I really like the bit where he looks out to Devil's Reef and he sees that the sea is completely full of people swimming for the shore. 
And this bit is always very impactful for me because my first exposure to the shadow over Innsmouth was the BBC radio adaptation of it. And that was the end of the penultimate episode. And they did like an audio sting of like dramatic music playing as they read that bit. And the narrator really, really put some mayonnaise on that bit. And that one like actually did scare me as a kid when I listened to it for the first time. Because that bit, I think, deserves a bit of, like, gravitas. It's the the reveal. Oh, my goodness. Because up to this moment, mm. obviously, as a reader, we know the kind of wider context. But at this point, you could almost go, maybe the people, it is just mundane. Yeah. Maybe there are no monsters. Maybe there Even are a if bit it crazy. is a maybe horror, a cult. it could still just be, like, the Wicker Man. I mean... It, I would, if it was like the Wicker Man, I'd be a hell of a lot better. But yeah, I know your point. It's just like, it could just be cultists and human horror. This mm-hmm. is when you first get that look of, oh, here comes the Cthulhu-ness. Here comes the otherworldliness. And it's great. And I really enjoy that moment. It's a shame that like the chase itself is just gets a bit weighed down and trying to tell me exactly what road he's on. Not needed. Yeah, I was not tracking well enough for that. But you're right. I love it. The change in the gate. Um, it's quite interesting. You mentioned how, like, you know, this is one of like the only two action scenes. And it's a chase scene. And the Mount Man is a chase scene because the Call of Cthulhu, like the RPG tabletop game, yeah, is heavily in f- focused on the idea that you have like chase scenes. And <laughs> it's true. It's these true. are the action set pieces. I'm like, does that really appear that often? Then again, that's the game's faces on a lot of the monsters, and they barely appear. There's a mention of a Shogoth here. Yeah. But I don't think it's even described. I think he just says, I saw a Shogoth. And I got real scared. So, this particular scene ends in what at the time was probably quite scary. At the time. At the time. Quite Nowadays, scary. quite silly, actually. Quite silly. He hides in a boxcar whilst escaping via the railways. And he sees these creatures run by in the moonlight and he finds out that all the stories about fish man miscegenation were real because he sees all these fish human hybrids running by and it's people with vaguely toed human bodies and big fish heads running by and one of them is dressed up like a 18th century gentleman sorry a 19th century gentleman with a top hat and then he faints because it's so scary. Now, to be fair, if I was actually like in this situation, terrifying. But all I can picture when I get this description is less like these otherworldly half fish people and more just like, oh, yeah, I can see how you would film that with some rubber suits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are some actual aliens from TNG who I'm just imagining now. Big people in like rubber masks just wobbling around eating shrimp. I usually just think, like, I've seen a little bit too much actually, like, graphic horror. Yeah, I mean, was it 1937 versus written? I mean, there or thereabouts. And I'm even just trying to think what descriptions we get from other Lovecraftian works. Like, is this really even his top tier in terms of... It tends to be not describing. That's what he does. Like, we discussed ages ago in our Monster Tier List episode about, like, the fact that Cthulhu himself isn't actually that scary when it comes down to it. Like, he's a... Like, his appearance isn't scary. And the idea he represents is supposed to be kind of scary, but 
in a quite distant way, which doesn't really affect me. And, uh, yeah, and he's so washed out by time and existing in the context of him being, like, more of a meme than a, a monster or a character that, well, who bloody cares? Like, Cthulhu's in this story as, like, a as a distant idea, but it's not, like, in a scary way at all. It's more in a sort of I haunting always... way. Yeah, I almost feel like if we'd had, like, the fish people and then maybe behind them, driving them onwards, was some undescribed thing. It would just left me maybe a little more, but I, I shouldn't kind of get into that. But yes, yeah, so we get this scene, it ends, it feels a little bit weak to me, particularly given the kind of adrenaline-inducing run-up to it. Mm-hmm. We faint, and then what really kind of does annoy me is that the character, the whole point of this is his escape. He faints halfway out of town, and then it's just like... Flash cut, boom, we're safe. Not only flash cut, for th- boom, I got away, I got to Arkham, and I told the authorities, and then they took care of everything. That's, like, what happens, like, the next two sentences, that's what happens. The whole thing is resolved in, like, a split second. How did you convince them that fish people were real? Actually, you know what? I just don't know. No, I it's do not insane. know how they... If anything, I can imagine this as like a, a multi-stage story of like, okay, we'll send one guy to check. Mm-hmm. And then and then it's that guy's story. Of, and then they have to, it's like, there's a whole narrative here that could be explored of how you even convince them. Seeing that you have no evidence. Nope. Like, what, did, someone has to go to, Ar- sorry, go to Innsmouth. Because the implication at the start of the story is that the US government has fully rounded up the town Probably killed them all. Massive cover-up. Yeah, they say they're concentration camps. Definitely not the thing you want to be about in 37. And it is just very, like, yeah, they went all in. I'm like, did they send a team? Did they already know? Or was it just this one guy's word? And they were like, yep, we believe him. Send in the army, boys. I was thinking whilst reading this, and I guess we're going to talk about this now before the conclusion of the story, which is probably the best part of the story, so we can, we can save that a little bit. I was thinking about adaptations of it. I was thinking, like, how would you adapt this into a movie? Because it never has been adapted into a movie. There's a movie called Cthulhu, which is vaguely an adaptation of Innsmouth, but it really has its own ideas, and it's not actually an adaptation. But if you did manage to make this into a movie... I think the way you do it is that in the same way this story has, like, a meta-narrative. So not a meta-narrative. It has a framing device, excuse me, where you he's writing about it as a past experience. I would likewise have numerous framing devices. I would begin the movie right at the very end, as he's making a principal key decision, but I would also show him explaining his experiences in Innsmouth to the police in Arkham. And that would be where some of the narration would come from. He'd be saying, no, I did this and I did that, and this is why I did that. And then you would show that happening as a sort of flashback. The majority of the movie would be a flashback. And I realize that the way... The way to get the police to be convinced to come along is you would have this pivotal scene where you have two police officers in the room, They both think he's crazy, but one of them says, 
what did you hear from those cultists? They said something, didn't they? And he would sort of like be in denial and says, I didn't hear anything. But the detective would lean across and say, you heard it, didn't you? What did you hear them say? And then he would stubbornly, well, not stubbornly, he would reluctantly say, I heard, ya, ya, Cthulhu Tagen. And then he'd do the, Cthulhu, ya, what nagel Tagen, you know, that whole thing. Um, smash cut from the last time I did that. Ya, ya, Cthulhu Tagen. That thing. And then we'd reveal that, like, the detective is the detective from Call of Cthulhu. Like, from a different story, which does feature a detective who finds, like, Cthulhu cultists. And he has experience of this, and therefore he believes him, because he has this definitive proof that he couldn't have learnt in other ways. And then, bam, they, 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 they do their investigation. Do you know, based on that kind of description and linking it into Call of Cthulhu, firstly, love that idea. It really gives me the vibe that the best way to do these stories, you wouldn't do it like a movie. You do it as like a episodic TV show, so the weird tales. And we'd have these kind of different threads. Each episode would be like its own thing. Yeah. But then it would be like each one then leads into a government case guy. Mm. He's like got all these files in front of him. It's like, so I've got a story out of Arkham. I've got a story out of... The mountains, and he's like building it up. Yeah, and and actually, you could even like confront the racist aspects of those stories with it by like trying to make it like a majority black cast and like reframe the paranoia around skin tones and race as to being a justified paranoia about living in like the nineteen twenties and thirties. Oh no, we just described the, the TV show Lovecraft Country. Wait, have we actually? Yes. Does that exist? But I was doing it on purpose. I wasn't. Yes. Oh, do no. you not know about this? There's a TV There's a TV show called Lovecraft Country, Duncan, which is inspired by the works of H.P. Lovecraft, but does it from a sort of antagonistic point of view towards H.P. Lovecraft and his racism, and it has a majority black cast. And does it actually do, like, his stories, or is it more of, like, a general theme? Um... So I didn't finish the series. I saw, like, the first couple of episodes through, and it concluded its arc, and I got distracted. I don't remember why. And that story is kind of inspired by Shadow of Innsmouth in that it's about, like, being, having a blood connection to the horror, which leads us into the final part of this story. This twist. I'm going to call it a twist. This, to yeah, me... it is a twist. ...was such... Kind of a nice ending, given the fact that the first, you know, three-fifths of this book, I did not like. I don't think they're good. The fact that we had our climax, I had my disappointment as well. I went, ah, the air's gone out of the balloon. All right, you've lost me. Let's just wrap. This little twist and the fact that it's layered neatly early on and then ties back in later was fantastic. Our main character basically discovers... Did you know of a twist going in? No. Interesting. Not at all. I am very fresh face to Shadow of Innsmouth. Like I know it. I don't even know what happens in Mountains of Madness. Or clue. Interesting. So we get it told to us that our main character then starts doing his own bit of family history and he realises that he's descendant from someone who lived in Arkham and he pieces together 
that the person who he sends from in Arkham, well, we heard earlier, there was a man whose daughter, I believe, it's like an offhand comment. I think it's from even the bus ticket bloke who's like, oh, yeah, and, and somehow they sorted out, a, he managed to get his daughter married off to some Arkham fella. And it just carries exactly. over. And he realises it's him. And he has his most like, oh, my goodness, I have some of whatever that funky fish blood is, is in me. And he's part of it. And really nice. It does make me think a little bit like, was it some level of like, was he then being called home to Innsmouth? Or was it just coincidence? But I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was a really fun. And it made me think, oh, in all of that garbled rubbish I was being given at the start, there were some seeds being planted that I didn't notice because I spent too much time thinking this is garbled rubbish and I don't want to pay mm-hmm. that much attention. So, really great. Geordie, I take it you liked it as well? Oh yeah, for sure. It's these, it's easily the strongest part and the most unique part of the story. The idea that not only has the hero, and that's a very weak use of a word, has encountered the horror, but actually the horror is a part of them. And it's also the most interesting part of H.P. Lovecraft as a writer. Because H.P. Lovecraft is kind of inspired by the ever-present belief that something inside himself is deeply rotten and will corrupt him. Do you know anything about H.P. Lovecraft's, like, family history, Duncan? No, I don't. Please, do enlighten me. So, his father was, like, a travelling salesman. And as a travelling salesman, he did what travelling salesmen do which is not sell very much and have many affairs. Uh, and in one of his affairs, he contracted syphilis. Syphilis, before the aid, before penicillin, um, does a lot of bad things. It can make your nose fall off, but most importantly, it makes you go insane. So he got locked up in a madhouse. And then his mother was diagnosed a couple of years later, when everything started to go wrong in her family, with hysteria. Hysteria means she was being difficult and annoying by being a woman. Uh, And she also got put in a sanitarium, which means that H.P. Lovecraft spent his entire rest of his life wondering if something in his family was making all of them go insane and wondering if he too was going to go insane and be locked up in a sanitarium. I mean, firstly, that sounds actually really rough, Um, but also that says so much about his writing. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. There's that. But yeah, I can I can see that, and I I think that idea is explored here. The idea that the horror is that's not something you can run from. You know, if it's already in you, it's the I don't think it was another example of it. I don't say it's more like the thing. Maybe that's not quite a good example. Maybe in Alien, it's like you're you're too it's too late for you. You've already been infected. It's like a zombie film. You've already been bitten, but you're not dead yet. Great. It's like the film Hereditary, except I haven't seen Hereditary, but I know that's the case, that it it is Hereditary. It's like Duncan, and this is what it is quite evocative, it's like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia can be handed down in families. Alcoholism can be handed down in families. Cancer can be handed down in families. We do inherit curses from our family. Those are very real. That's a real source of horror. And it's, yeah, it is. It's the inescapableness. And it relates back to kind of that real-world experience. I found it quite interesting, Geordie, in this book, how despite all the kind of cosmic horror that we talk about with Lovecraft, it was the more closer-to-home things that I actually found 
scary. It wasn't the other. It was more the the self-experience. It was the being in a room and not being able to lock the door. It was the idea that, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm already infected. It's already in me. Or will it be in me? Will it manifest? And having that fear that there's nothing you can do. Either will or it won't. That helplessness. That was what got me. Yeah. And the fish people aren't as scary. Well, not compared to that. How can they be? Especially when the fish, one fish person's wearing a blooming top hat. Yeah, that's not scary. That's genuine comedy. I don't know. Does, does it say he has a monocle? Or did I just do that myself? Just pitch him there. <laughs> I think it's justifiably put that in yourself. It probably fell out, though. Well, I feel that's all I have to say on Innsmouth. Do I recommend it? So I feel like we've got time to the end there very quick. Because I just want to wrap up. <laughs> I, think I do know. just need to kind of wrap up and say, I don't recommend this story, Geordie. Despite all the good things I've just said. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I don't recommend it either. I think that it is a story that is ripe for adaptation. I know it has been adapted many times, but I haven't actually seen a good adaptation of it yet. I think that everyone should give me uh, $65 million and I'll make a real good uh, Innsmouth story. Uh, the opening scene will be him visiting his cousin in the sanitarium who's undergoing this hideous change and you won't see it first that like you know he's he's got the fucked up in his mouth face but you'll see like weird carvings on a wall you go back um robert olmstead is a cool guy now he's not a dweeb who cares about architecture um he'll be he'll be best pals with a, of a student at miskatonic university called danforth who will be the one of the starring characters in a follow-up film at the mountains of madness um Jordy, would you I, have I, I cared, that but if our character was actually going to Innsmouth, like, intentionally. Like, he could have keep his secret from the reader. But... No, no, no. It, 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 no, there's nothing wrong with him going there by, like, by coincidence. In fact, I think it is quite, uh, it is quite strong, but it's literally just an accident. He can save a little bit of money by getting the bus instead of a train. That's fine by me. He just needs more of a reason to stay there. Him being interested in, like, the crown is okay, um, the thing at the end, though, where he's just like, and then coincidentally, I started looking at the genealogy of my family. Again, what a fucking dweeb. I think those are kind of the weaker points here. I do think that the coincidence, the reason why he's in his mouth, it's like, yeah, you're staying because we need to have our horror scenes. But yeah, the coincidence is mostly fine. He could be called back by like some deep yearning in him or whatever. It's not a big deal. What happens to the store clerk, by the way? Does he just get on the bus and go home for the day? Uh, he lives in Innsmouth, um, and he probably gets eaten. Because I'm like, that's like meant to be a normal character. And I don't think it's ever addressed again how he's just like, yeah, and then when all the fish come out at night, I just go to bed and lock the door and ignore it. Yeah. I make, they, Every night, my foster family, they take the lock off my door, and every night I put it back on, and that's how <laughs> we live. <laughs> but hey, I need this job, so gotta yeah. stick at this, it. Listen, um don't read this story really like there are probably better adaptations out there and you can just do your own better there's a call of cthulhu role-playing game it's pretty fun uh you can make those stories and just have them be less racist and even in hp lovecast's own library i think there are some other stories there short stories that contain less of the unpleasant racism and are just a bit tighter and better paced yes my personal favorite outsider 
That is a good story. It's like four pages long, and it's re- it's like a refined version of the Shadow Shadow over Innsmouth. Just the same, but chopped down 25 times over. That actually does. I, I, do you know what, Geordie? I will go and read that. I would. It's, that's not a bad story. My personal favourite has always been the music of Eric Zahn. I don't know if you've ever read that one. I have not read that one. It's a fantastic read. Again, the main character is a bit weird, to be honest, but it has a wonderful bit of imagery of like a crazed violinist, hellscapes. Uh, It is truly kind of amazing, impactful. And then the main character faints and we just kind of skip to the end. But weird, really enjoyable because I think it doesn't have the same aspects of the racism and it doesn't have the long kind of dull stretches of let me just tell you some history, sir. Do you regret picking this one, Duncan? I don't, to be honest. Well, maybe I do. I was always going to pick one of the bigger H.P. Lovecraft stories. And I kind of tied between Call of Cthulhu at the Mountains of Madness and Shadow over Innsmouth. If I could go back in time, maybe Mountains of Madness probably would have been a funner read based on what you've told me today. I enjoy that one more. It is a bit boring in places, but not from the same perspective. There's just areas where they explain what the Cambrian explosion was for a while. But that's just interesting. I think there's also an aspect where I want to kind of grasp Lovecraft, but I think it's not actually what I sometimes think it is. I always feel like there's a story out there that's going to really tell me this is Cthulhu, this is the the world and the cosmic horror. But actually, it's a very subtle through line that maybe exists throughout many of the stories, yeah. and then they all, like little puzzle pieces, come together to form an image. But there's no one story that really goes, here's the Cthulhu. Yeah. So much of of what the canon of H.P. Lovecraft, Lovecraft and Horror, and the the Cthulhu mythos, the capital C, capital M, Cthulhu mythos, was not invented by Lovecraft. It was invented by writers who came later who were inspired by him and wrote stories in in his collections. Like, even some of the ideas that we connect with Lovecraft came from Howard Phillips. Uh, Not from Howard Phillips, excuse me. Came from Robert E. Howard, our boy. Like, he was writing stuff that was inspired by Lovecraft, and uh, sometimes it's more interesting. He also just overwrites everything. I get a sense this man was paid by the paid by the word. <laughs> he might have been paid by the reading level. Like, if you write this in, in a grade 12, you'll get more than if it's a grade 9 reading level. See, that never really bothered me, but something that I would love to know a little bit more about Lovecraft is how much power the editors had over his work. And how much at the time That's, he was be selling. Because I know, obviously, I really like Robbie Howard. But a lot of his work was heavily edited. He was constantly getting bounced back with the editors and butting heads. And I do wonder, was Lovecraft mm. in a similar place? Yeah, Was there an editor who read the I first... I wonder, because Lovecraft is considered a more successful author. But he also kind of died in obscurity. He only really became like super important after he was dead. I mean... That is a huge slew of authors who share that club. But yeah, was that kind of the vibe then? Was it more of a, you know, you never know. Was there was there a first draft of Innsmouth where it had a little bit more going on and the guy was just like, no, take this out. I want to hear more about that busman story. Actually, no, there's no way Edison was doing anything of this story. 
35 pages of his 50-page story are people monologuing. If anything, you're like, please, Howard, for the love of God, can you write one action scene? And he went, fine. Fine, I will lower my high art to your standards. I'm assuming this is how he talks. That's how I feel he talks. I can... That's kind of the impression I get, though, when this story feels a little overlong. It feels a bit like there's an editor there going, oh, we need... We need an extra 15 pages to fill this issue. Oh, what have we got on the pile? And they just go, yeah, that'll do. Come on now. So, I think that if you really want to get some stuff that's successful in the Lovecraftian genre, don't look for the Necronomicon. Look for Black Wings of Cthulhu. Look for writers who are inspired by him and learn from his mistakes and write in a slightly more you know, tolerable style because he is so verbose and polysyllabic when he doesn't need to be. Speaking of, my choice, Duncan, for our next book is also cosmic horror and to my understanding, it might be a bit Lovecraftian-inspired. Ooh. I am, I on, I'm on tenterhooks here because the last time that you recommended something a bit... Lovecraft inspired. We read the excellent study in Emerald, one of my absolute favourite short yes. stories. Is this kind of a similar vibe? That was that, that was a good episode. I have no idea. I literally had never heard of it before until I just did some reading. I basically wanted to find something which I'd never heard of, and I think I mean I know you're not going to have heard of this. It's the Worm and His Kings. Well. You're right in saying that I've never heard of it. And nor have I. I'm excited to see whether it's any good. Well, hopefully some of our listeners may have heard of this and can fill us in on whether or not this is one of those secret gems or not so much. No, I think we're going to be forging ahead with this one, Duncan. But if you have strong opinions on the works of H.P. Lovecraft with a shadow of it in his mouth or whether we should have read one of his other short stories instead, please let us know at our Instagram, Is This Just Fantasy Podcast? Or reach out to us on our Gmail, Is This Just Fantasy Podcast at gmail.com. What's available on our Instagram are more in depth reviews of the books mentioned at the start of this episode House of Many Ways and The Stand. Both me and Georgie have written. In, in more detail if you want to hear more about those books yeah we're doing a lot more on instagram these days like duncan is actually making me like do stuff for it and i'm actually having fun i i make i made berserk memes duncan were you were you did you like them did you like my berserk memes oh i love the berserk memes my favorite moment though is when geordie first sent me over a review and i went excellent mate uh, you need a photo to attach to this it's like, learning the Instagram fix. We're not old men. We're youthful. We know how it works. It, it, Duncan is being very nice, because what he actually means is that it took me a month to send him that photograph. <laughs> but it was very pretty when I got it. Thank you, Duncan. That's very kind of you. I've since had a haircut. Well, Duncan, I look forward to seeing you next time when we're going to review Haley Piper's The Worm and His Kings. I really hope it's a good one, because I'm going out on a limb here. Fingers crossed for you, mate. I hope it's a good one, too. I hope you've all enjoyed listening. I've been your host, Duncan Nicholl. And I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. Goodbye. So long.